Well, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads in here. Happy Father's Day to the future dads that are going to be dads one day. Uh, we love it that you guys are here. It's a big step to come to church. There's a lot of other places you could be celebrating Father's Day, but you came here to gather with God's people. And listen, don't miss this moment. I know you're probably going to go eat a steak after this, and it's going to be amazing, but don't miss this moment to engage God and to receive a word from him. And I believe that's what God is going to do for you as dads and really for all of us in the room today. Uh, our dads, you should have gotten one thing uh, when you came in, as the, and that's a candy bar with a little uh, Have a Sweet Father's Day attached to that. Did you guys get one of those? Yeah, a few of you? Okay, Sal, you got one. Okay. And then every one of you should have gotten one of these bulletins. Kat's already pointed it out. Uh, the reason we pointed it out is, one, we just want you to use this and take advantage of this. Sometimes uh, people say to me, like, Tim, uh, if we would do more uh, financial updates, like I would know what our giving is like. And, and I say to them, it's always in the bulletin, right on the inside flap. And they say, really? And they don't tell me they never look at the bulletin, but that's the truth. Uh, and so we want you to look at it, we want you to take notes with it, look at what's going on this summer, uh, fill out a connect card, drop it in the offering, uh, fill out prayer requests that you might have. And, and here's why today I'm emphasizing it a little bit more is the main application of today is going to involve this bulletin. So right now, even if you didn't get one, you won't offend me at all, go back to the lobby and grab one because you'll need it at the very end. Okay, so there's the bulletin. And... Um, Today, I know as we enter into Father's Day, uh, some of you have experienced Father's Day in a church before. Uh, and typically the way it goes, and the way it goes for me, even in my history in the church, is Mother's Day is a day to honor, and Father's Day is a day to rebuke. Have you guys experienced that before? That Mother's Day, we say, women, we are just so thankful for you, and moms, you have such a hard job, and we just want to care for you and be grateful for you and show you how, how kind you are, and we want to be kind to you, and so we're going to give you a flower, and, and we're so gracious to our women, but then we come to Father's Day, and we get a good old hearty rebuke, right? And, and some of that is, is okay, because for our men, they lead the family, and we need to challenge them and dig into them and give them a kick in the pants every once in a while, because God wants men to lead, and men are often passive. And so some of that is good. But listen, what I want you to hear today, uh, especially our, our fathers, is not rebuke, but prayer. Not rebuke, but prayer. Because here's what I do know is that a lot of us walk in here that are dads, and you made it here, you're here, you are here to gather with God's people, you have made that decision, but it was hard, even this morning, to get here. And as you think about Father's Day, and you're wondering, what is he going to talk about, and how guilty am I going to feel, and how rebuked am I going to be today, and you, you feel a little bit overwhelmed. Some of you who are not dads yet... Think about the prospect of having children, and it's such a daunting, overwhelming task because of the, the way we talk about fathers, the way we rebuke fathers. And so I, I know it's a big charge to be a father. I am a father. I have three kids, and there is nothing in my life that has brought me more happiness but also humility than being a father. So I get that. I know for all of us in this room, we have been affected by a father. Maybe a father for some of us who's not here anymore. He's passed away. Maybe for some of us, it's a father who was never there. You never knew your father. And maybe he was even there physically, but you didn't know him emotionally or spiritually. And so I get what we walk into today. And so what I want to do is not rebuke our fathers, but pray for our fathers. 
You're going to get some challenge here and some encouragement, some exhortation, but I want to pray for our fathers. Would you pray with me that today would be a day that's defined by our spouses, by our kids, by our friends, praying for the role of fatherhood? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word says that you are a father to the fatherless. And so, God, the reality is we don't just have to rebuke our fathers today. We can encourage them in light of you as our heavenly father. That anyone in here today who today is a, is a tough day, an emotional day because they don't have their father or they never had a father. God, I pray in this moment the power of the Holy Spirit, they would see that you are a father to the fatherless. They would feel the comfort of that, the encouragement of that today. God, I do pray for our fathers in this room, for the men who would become fathers one day, that you would empower them, equip them with a spirit of boldness. Not because they're amazing fathers, but because they point to the perfect father. God, I pray that that would that would happen in our families. I pray that you would change not just lives this morning, but legacies of men who will invest in their kids, of men who will invest in our kids' ministry, of men who will invest in our, in our world for the glory of Christ, for their joy. God, may we not start out today beating ourselves up and saying we're not good enough or we've done too much or we're too far gone, but God, you would give us a renewed sense of hope in the name of Jesus Christ who proclaims our Heavenly Father. And that's what we would step into this morning. So encourage us. I invite you into this space. Help us not miss this moment today as fathers and everybody in this room. So in the name of Jesus, I pray that. Amen. Well, uh, as we continue in our series today, we're going to look at uh, one of our, our founding fathers of the faith. And if you've read the Bible at all, specifically the early parts of the Bible, when you see the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what you will quickly see is there's some dysfunction in those men. Uh, you look at just the first few characters in the Bible, you see a liar, you see a murderer, you see a deceiver in Jacob's case. And, and sometimes what we do in the church is we look at those characters and we want to leave out all the dysfunction. Because we don't really know what to do with it because we think, and this is the Bible revealing God's word to us through these men. And so what do we do with that, that the founding fathers, the key figures of our faith, are so broken? And so sometimes in kids' stories, we'll leave these details out. And we want to paint these guys as heroes. And you need to know, we, that's a misstep for us as the church and with the Bible. Here's the primary reason why. One, their flaws and brokenness are in the Bible, so we don't need to leave them out, right? We want to preach the whole counsel of God's word, the pretty parts and the messy parts. So, so we don't leave their flaws or their brokenness out because it's, first of all, it's in the Bible. It's in God's revealed word. We need to learn from that. The second reason why we need to keep the flaws and keep the brokenness in here with our, our heroes, our founding fathers of our faith is because it reveals an important truth, and it's this. That the only perfect person that God ever uses in all of the Bible is Jesus. The only hero in all of the Bible is Jesus. The main character in all of the Bible is Jesus. And so what do we do with the dysfunction? We use that. We use that as an opportunity to point us to Jesus. And so as we look at the life of Jacob, and this is a one of the best examples of this, because Jacob was a jacked up dude. 
listen, as we look at some of this story, and you're going to be tempted to do this because we can go to either side of the spectrum on this. As we look at this jacked up guy in Jacob, we could be tempted to look at that guy and say, well, oh, he's so lame. How could this guy miss it so often? He's so lame. And then others of us who grew up in the church and had the flannel graphs, we could be tend, tend to look at Jacob and think, man, what a legacy this guy is. And, and I don't know if I could live, ever live up to that. And the reality is, is we want to fall somewhere in between. We don't want to look at Jacob as lame. We don't want to just look at his legacy alone. We want to learn from Jacob. We want to learn how, how does a big God use a broken guy like this? How does a faithful God use a flawed guy like this? Because maybe if he did that with Jacob, maybe he can do that with me. Do you see it? And so let's dive into some of his story. You start out at the beginning of Jacob's life. Uh, Jacob is a twin with his brother Esau, uh, but he's born in a little bit different way. I don't know if you've ever witnessed uh, uh, twins being born, or maybe you have twins or, or have a family member who has twins. This birth was like no other that I know of, in that Esau was born slightly ahead of Jacob, and it says even before they were born, they were wrestling in the womb. And when they're born, Esau's born slightly ahead of Jacob, and it says that Jacob is grabbing Esau's heel. Can you picture that? I don't know if you've seen that in delivery rooms. I haven't. It seems kind of unique, and that's their, their story, and that's really an indication of the rest of their lives, that the rest of their lives, Jacob's going to be trying to grab at Esau's heel. And his name fits that. His name, Jacob, literally means deceiver or trickster. And he goes on to live that out. We see it with his brother. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He steals, get this, he steals the blessing from his old and blind father. How deplorable is that? He goes and impersonates his brother, gets all hairy because Esau was hairy. Interesting fact in your Bible. And he steals the blessing from his old and blind father. This is Jacob. This is your founding father of the faith. And so he stays true to his name, deceiver. But eventually after all this, all the blessing and all the birthright that he's trying to grab at the heel of his brother, he flees. And the tables slowly begin to turn on Jacob. He goes from deceiver to deceived. His uncle Laban that he goes to live with, he tricks him into working for him for 20-ish years to try to marry both of his daughters. And listen, that's a whole nother story in the Bible that we're not going to get to today, but that's another one of his flaws. But overall, Jacob goes from deceiver to deceived, and Laban deceives him, and he works all these years, ends up with both of these wives, and still doesn't get this blessing that he's so, uh, trying so hard to attain, and so he leaves. In fact, in chapter 31... God commands him to leave. He commands him, it's time to go home. You gotta stop running from your problems. You gotta stop maneuvering and tricking around every situ situation. And you need to face all of this head on. And so Jacob does something different for once. He obeys God. And he doesn't try to maneuver. He doesn't try to trick. He goes home. And, and here's why this is interesting. And here's why the tables are beginning to turn for Jacob is as he goes home, he hears word in earlier in chapter 32 that he's going to meet his brother Esau. It's going to be a clash of the titans. 20 plus years later, they're going to meet up and all these wrongdoings and all the deception and all the lies that Jacob's been running from, he's going to have to meet that head on. 
And if you look at the life of Jacob, typically he would try to maneuver around that, but he doesn't. He keeps going. He doesn't go back to see his uncle. He doesn't run away from it. He keeps going. And not only does he keep going, but he sends some gifts. You see, Jacob had been, had been trying to steal a blessing for all his life, but now he begins to extend a blessing. And he sends gifts ahead of their camp to uh, Esau. And, and this is really interesting is because Esau is not coming by himself. Okay? Esau, if we read earlier in chapter 32, he has 400 men with him. Now, I don't know if you can get the context there, but typically you don't bring 400 men to hug it out. You're bringing 400 men to attack somebody. And so Jacob sees that coming. He, he stares it down. He extends a blessing. He sends away gifts. And as we come to our passage, what he's just done, the night before this meeting with Esau, what he's just done is he's put his whole family, his whole crew, his whole entourage, all his food, all his gear, he puts it on the other side of the stream. And as we read our passage today, Jacob's by himself in his defining moment, his moment of truth before he meets Esau. And he doesn't run away, but he gets alone. And, and as you look at the context of this, and just imagine, it says in verses 23 and 24 that he puts everything, it says literally, everything he has. And so as you picture this, what you need to picture is a man all alone, in the dark, without any food, any gear. That's what you need to picture. And so every scary movie that you've ever seen, picture that. Right? As I read this, I thought, why, why would Jacob do this? I mean, this does seem like a scary movie of just like, hey, let me go over here in the dark by myself. And you know when you're watching a scary movie, like I was reading this, and you're saying, don't, don't do that. That's not a good idea. Why would you go there? The guy with the chainsaw is over there. But that's what Jacob does. And if you look at a little bit more closely, you see why he he does this, that Jacob is getting a moment alone, stripping away every distraction, because this is his moment of truth, because this is the moment God begins to move. You know, as I thought about that for me in my life and our day, I, I heard recently from a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author that I deeply respect, and he was asked, amongst some other people, he was polled, hey, what's your biggest concern for our day, our generation? And you know what he said? He said, you know, with all the technological advancements, with all the internet, with all the minute-by-minute -minute content that we receive, that today we don't face an enemy of information. He said, no, we face a greater enemy than that. We face an enemy of thought. And what he was talking about is that every minute we can get random facts. Every minute we can get social media. Every minute we can get news. Every minute we get hysteria and it's chaos in our lives, minute by minute. And we can get information on anything we want. We have uh, Siri. We have Echo. We have people that will, will speak things to us if we just ask them a question. We have everything in information at our fingertips. But what we don't have is, is thought. Now, why is that a problem? Well, Romans 12 says that we are transformed by the renewing of what? Our mind. So if we never think, if we never get alone, stripping away distraction, we never get our minds renewed and transformed by God. 
And as Tim Keller has asked this question, he says, you know what the biggest enemy of our day is? It's the enemy of, of a lack of, of thought. And I think as we look at this, that it's not a coincidence that Jacob stops for the first moment in his life. He stops trying to trick, trying to deceive, and instead he removes distraction. And he gets alone. And that's when God begins to move. You see, as I look at our lives, as I talk with you, as I look at my own life, a lot of times many of us will ask, like, God, God, are you moving God, why aren't you moving? And the reality is, God is moving. You're just too distracted to notice. That it's no coincidence in Jacob's life that this is when God starts to move. And it's no coincidence in your life when you stop, you remove distraction, that you begin to actually see God moving in and through and around you. And so as we first look at this, Jacob does a good thing. He stops, he gets away, and God begins to literally, in his case, move upon him. And that's where the story continues in verse 24. Look at the verse with me. It says this. It says, the man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, as you heard David read this portion of scripture, as you look at this story, the question you're probably asking, the question really you should be asking is, who's this man? Who's this man that wrestles with Jacob? Well, if you look at the text, and this is something to, good to do, anytime you come to a place in Scripture where you're unsure or confused, you just want to let the text interpret the text. And so if you just look at the words, I'd love for you to do it with me. We see two things in this passage that clue us in on who this man actually is. The first thing is this, that God renames Jacob Israel a little bit later in this passage. And the word Israel means to strive with God. And so just by looking at that, we can see this man that Jacob is wrestling with isn't just a mere man. Number two, later in verse 30, we see after this wrestling match, Jacob give, gives the place a name, Peniel, which means the face of God. And if that wasn't enough, he goes on to say, I have seen God face to face, and yet he has delivered me. And so what we know, just by looking at this passage alone, this isn't just a man. This is some form of God. Now, as we look further, Hosea 12 references this account, and it says specifically, Jacob struggled with the angel. And so some will look back and think, well, maybe this is a messenger sent by God. We know from the New Testament that sometimes we interact angels unaware, and maybe that's what happened with Jacob. Maybe God sends a messenger on his behalf to wrestle with Jacob. Other scholars will look at this, and as we see man, and then we see face of God, and Jacob says, I'm wrestling with a man, but I'm also wrestling with God. Who's the only God-man in all of Scripture? Jesus. And so some scholars will put that together and say, well, maybe this is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus is from before all time. It didn't start with his birth in the New Testament. And so maybe this is the God-man, Jesus Christ, wrestling with Jacob. And listen, I would tend to go with um, the angel, just personally, because we see that in Hosea. And again, Scripture interprets Scripture. But if it was Jesus, I could see that too. And so I don't want you to get stumbled up on those details, but what I do want you to see is this is an encounter with God. And much like today, maybe you don't wrestle with someone physically to have an encounter with God, but often today God works through people. God works through a messenger. And you're dealing with God, but there may be your spouse right in front of you. You're dealing with God, but you may be in a church service hearing the word of God. 
And so the point I want you to see, we can't go back in time and, and imagine, well, it's dark, like who was it really? Was it an angel? Was it Jesus? I don't know, but I know it's an encounter with God. And we look at that and we see it in scripture. I hope you'll see that as well. And in this encounter, verse 25 tells us there's some pain. Look at that verse with me. We see they've been wrestling, but Jacob is hanging in there, right? But then God goes all Mr. Miyagi on him, and he touches his hip and throws it out of joint, right? He just did this, touches his hip, throws it out of joint, and there's some pain associated with that. I don't know if you've ever thrown out your hip. I never have done that, uh, but earlier this week, I went to the gym, and I came home after the gym, and I said to my wife as I was bending down to pick up one of my kids, I said, ow, like my leg up here by my hip really hurts. And she said, well, what did you do? Was it one of the machines? Was it the free weights? Was it a specific movement? And I said, well, it all started when I got out of the car. The car next to me was parked really close, and so I had to get my water bottle and all my things, and I had to navigate out of the car and squeeze around, and I literally put one leg out, and I was like, ow, that really hurts. And to this day, my hip hurts a little bit when I bend down to pick up my kids, just from getting out of the car. I don't want to talk about it. But I know that hurts, and I know that's staying with me a little bit. Can you imagine getting your th hip thrown out by God throwing on the Mr. Miyake? That's painful, right? So it's an encounter with God, but it's a painful one. And we see what Jacob does in his pain. He hangs on. Verse 26, look at that verse. It says, I will not let go. What does Jacob want? Why, why won't Jacob let go? He says, I will not let go until you bless me. All this time, Jacob's still looking for that blessing. But now, the difference is, in his pain, in his encounter with God and his brokenness, he's looking for that blessing in the right place. He's not looking to trick his father into giving it to him. He's not looking to get it through deceiving his brother. He's looking for it from the accurate source, and that's from God. That God is going to bless him. And Jacob looks for that in the midst of his pain. And it says he does not let go. This is a scene of brokenness, but it's also a scene of strength. Remember this picture. Jacob is in a moment of desperation before he meets Esau. He's been wrestling all night. His hip is all jacked up. He's in pain, but he will not let go. And as I read this, I thought for a lot of us, especially on a day like Father's Day, especially considering our men, that many of us let go way too soon. That many of us experience pain and brokenness, and we let go way too soon. I thought about last uh, Saturday, Unite Phoenix, our once-a-month serve event, and I told you a little bit about this last week and what one group did. Well, the group I went with, what we did is we went and handed out flyers for uh, Vacation Bible School. And we did it in some of these apartments right over here. And if you don't know this area too well, it's one of the most impoverished places in our city. And so we go to one of these apartment complexes and we're canvassing the place with flyers for this vacation Bible school on a Saturday morning. And do you know who we encountered the most? Moms. Moms would come to the door and we'd give them a flyer, we'd give them a popsicle, we'd invite them to this vacation Bible school. There's going to be a bus that comes by and picks you up. And I would say 90% of the units we visited, moms. 
That's who we talked to. And, and I don't know the circumstances. Maybe dad was asleep. Maybe dad was at work. And I think all that is likely. But if you look at this area and you know the demographic and you know the poverty, the reality is there's an epidemic of fatherlessness. That it's no accident that we walked up and met every mom at the door instead of the father. Um, there was one uh, instance particularly that uh, a woman came to the door. She looked scared like maybe the cops are here. And she kind of just cracked the door open and you could tell she was strung out on drugs. You could smell it in the room. And as we talked to this lady, we gave her a flyer just like everybody else. And I literally, I can't get this image out of my head. The, the smell, the, the lady's face, and not just the drugs, not just the situation, but the hopelessness. And then in the background, you hear a baby crying. And I don't know where dad is in that moment, but he's not there. And what you see and what you're going to see in, this, in neighborhoods like this is a generational brokenness because of situations like that. Because the father's not there. The man is not there. And listen, I know as I talk to you today that you're here you're here physically, and so you haven't let go completely. But some of us, we're not letting go physically, but we're letting go emotionally and spiritually. That we come home from a long day of work and we say, I know I got the kids, I know I got these duties at home, but man, work is really hard and the pressures of being a man is really hard. And like, I don't know if I can do this. And oftentimes, what we do is we check out and we let go too soon. Right? Maybe it's not the extreme of that example that I, I mentioned. Maybe it's not that extreme, but we let go too soon. Have you let go too soon? If you're honest with yourself, are there days where you let go too soon? Listen, what we can see from Jacob, he's in a moment of brokenness. That he's in a moment of surrender to God. But that there's strength in that. That we might look at this picture and say, well, man, Jacob, I mean, he's in a pretty bad spot. I mean, he's just hanging on by a thread. His hip's all out of whack. Maybe that's a picture of weakness, but it's not. It's a picture of strength because he's not letting go. Men, fathers, we don't need to let go too soon. We need to check in, not check out. We need to check in with our spouse, check in with our kids, check in with our relationships. We need to not believe the lie because many of us, even in this room, are tempted to believe that lie, aren't we? The lie that says, man, it, it's, it's maybe stronger to escape rather to engage. It, it's maybe stronger to, to quit than try and, and fail. It, it's maybe stronger to defend and deflect rather than repent and forgive. That maybe it's stronger and our culture tells us that and we tell ourselves that. And we let go too soon. Don't let go too soon. Because the reality is, as you let go, the pain is still there. The pain is still there. It's just devoid of purpose. The responsibility is still there. The pressure is still there when you let go. 
It doesn't go away. It doesn't vanish, even though we buy that lie that it does. And so we need to hang on. We need to not let go too soon because there are generations at stake, not just in these neighborhoods, but in this room, in our kids' ministry, that we need to hang on, invest, even when it's hard, because I know it's going to be hard, and I know it's hard. I'm a father. I get that. But will you hang on? Will you not let go too soon so that you can see what God wants to do in you and through you? That's the situation with Jacob, and that's how God begins to go on to bless and use Jacob. Verse 27, we get this seemingly random question in the middle of this wrestling match. And God says, what is your name? And now when you first read that, you think, they're wrestling all night and you don't know his name? They're wrestling all night, his hip is out of joint, and now you're like, hey, what's your name? Seems very casual after intense pain. But what this signifies here is when God asks, what's your name? Name signified nature. Way more than it does now, it still does that now a little bit, but in that day, name signified nature. What does Jacob's name mean? We already said it. Deceiver. So in this moment, God says, hey, what's your name? Because God knows his name, and God knows Jacob's been trying to run away from his name. And so Jacob has to acknowledge in this moment, I'm a deceiver. I can't lie my way out of that. I can't maneuver my my way out of that. I'm a deceiver. That's who I am. That's my name. That's my nature. And God wants Jacob to acknowledge who he is in order to help him become who he needs to become. And so he starts with his name. And then Jacob goes on to ask him his name. He doesn't tell him, he just blesses him. And and I look at that too and I think, well, why wouldn't you just answer his name? Simple question, right? Or you just say, I'm God of the heavens, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm here to, to rescue you. And the reality is because Jacob knows God's name because he knows his name. Because he knows my name is Deceiver, but then What happens is God gives Jacob a new name, and it's Israel. It's striving with God, and he changes his nature. He changes his name, and that helps him know God's name. And so he takes a broken person, and he changes him into a blessed nation. That's what Israel goes on to become. This is, in your Bible, the first mention of the name Israel that we have. And it's through Jacob as he renames him. Deceiver to striver, that you've met with God. You're going to be defined by me in your very nature. And that's how God blesses him. He changes his life, but he also changes his legacy. We see that in Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, where we have all these mentions of all these people in the Old Testament and how they stepped out in faith in God. And we see Jacob mentioned there. And when Jacob is mentioned, what is mentioned about him in the hall of faith is at the end of his life when he goes on to bless his children and his grandchildren. And so what you see is a progression. As Jacob gets renamed Israel, he's not defined by his deception any longer. He's defined by the glory of God. As that happens, he takes a broken person and changes him into a blessed nation. As he doesn't let go in this moment of strength and surrender... God uses him to change a life, but also a legacy. That at the very end of Genesis, we get this moment where 
Jacob, the one who stole a blessing, now receives a blessing and then extends that blessing to his kids and his grandkids. And 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, go on to be God's people throughout the Old Testament, and God moves through them to bring us Jesus Christ. And so what's happening here is not just a life, but it's a legacy. And then we see in verse 31 that Jacob walks away with a limp. He walks away with a limp. He keeps walking, but he has a limp. Something's different about Jacob. I know when, uh, again, we have three kids. When we first uh, had my first child, my daughter, when I found out we were having a girl, I vividly can picture the scene. Uh, We were sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor just quite simply said, it's a girl. And before this time, I don't know why I always thought it would be a boy. I don't know why. But I always thought it would be a boy, and in that moment when he says, it's a girl, I literally uh, had this moment where all of my life flashed before my eyes, and I saw prom, and I saw training bras, and I saw the wedding day, and and I saw it all, and I remember going out, and we're supposed to pay our bills and get all that settled. And I remember sitting in the waiting room paralyzed. And my wife had to pay the bills. And she came over and sat beside me and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just, I just don't know. Like a girl, like prom and training bras and wedding days. Like how am I going to do all that? And my wife was so gracious to me in that moment. She just said, Tim, you have a while to figure that out. And she began to talk me off this ledge and say, Tim, you're going to figure this out. No, you're not ready for this, and neither am I, but God's going to shape us, and he's going to mold us, and he is going to prepare us to raise this little girl and to deal with all of those things. You're not ready now. You can't be ready for that. But God's going to equip you. He's going to allow you to walk into this, and he's going to do it, right? My daughter's eight now. Some of those things still haven't happened yet, but she's, she's here, and she's healthy, and she's, she's following Jesus, and it's, it's an amazing thing. You see, when I look back on a day like Father's Day, when I look back at all three of my kids, and I look back at that specific instance, I think my biggest fear was walking with a limp. Okay? My biggest fear is that I would look stupid being a father that I wouldn't know how to handle all things with a daughter, that I would walk with a limp, that I wouldn't know what I was doing, that I would just kind of make it through. But you see, here's what we can celebrate as we look at Jacob who walks away with a limp, is that he's still walking. He's still in the game. He's still walking. That there is a legacy in a limp. And that's the same for me as a father. That's the same for everyone in this room. And it is that way because of Jesus Christ. You look at this situation. Why is Jacob blessed? Why has he come out of here even walking, able to walk with a limp? Why does that happen? It's God's grace. It's unmerited favor completely. Did Jacob get this blessing? Did Jacob walk out of here to bless others because he was a good father? No. Because he was a good son? No. Because he was a good brother? No. It was unmerited favor based on no merit of his own. God's grace did that, and God's grace does that for every one of you. 
that through Jesus, you can walk, you can hold on, even if it's with a limp. And you know why there's legacy in a limp? Is because you're not pointing to yourself and you're not banking on yourself handling your daughter right or handling your kids right or handling your job right. You're not banking on that. You're banking on the only one, listen, the only one who never has walked with a limp in history. You're pointing to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And when you do that, and when you get that, and when you realize he's going to shape you, he's going to equip you to raise your daughter, to work a job, to provide for your family, there's legacy in that limp. You know what I want for PBC, for Phoenix Bible Church? I want some men who are walking with a limp, but are still walking, still pointing to the one who, who doesn't walk with a limp, and still saying, man, I don't know how to father my Daughter, at two years old, at 15 years old, I don't know how to do that, but I'm trying, and here's how I'm trying. I'm walking with a limp. I'm broken, but I have a big God. I'm flawed, but I serve a God who is faithful, and he sent Jesus, and he's going to equip me through the power of the Spirit to father this kid, to work this job, to do everything I'm responsible to do. I want some men in PBC who walk with a limp, who don't let go who hang on, who don't see that as a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. And who point the kids in our church, the kids in your family, our city, the next generation, who point to the one who didn't walk with a limp, and that's Jesus Christ. I want some men who I can send people to and say, you know what, he doesn't know everything to say, he's not the most articulate, he doesn't have it all figured out, but he's trying, he's walking. And he'll let you look at his limp. And he'll show you, like, I'm having some trouble with my kids right now. I'm having some trouble at my job right now. But here's how I'm trying. Here's what I'm doing. I I want some men at Phoenix Bible Church that that we can go to in times of, of crisis, that we can go to when we see things like that in that neighborhood where there's just a sense of hopelessness. And and I want some men who can step up and encourage others to find hope in Jesus Christ. Not because you know it all, not because you have it all figured out, but because you're following the one who who does. Listen, the legacy of Jacob's life is not him. Man, thank God, it's not him, it's God. It's how God worked in him and through him around him. The legacy of your life is you keep walking walking, You keep going at it. You keep holding on, and God will shape you, and God will equip you. And then just like Jacob, you'll be able to go from receiving a blessing to extending a blessing, and that will be your legacy. The last thing I want to do is really where we started is is pray. Um, But I don't want to just close the the sermon in prayer. I want to do something different. I would love for you to, to take this bulletin, again, that you got when you walked in, and I'd love for you to take that card in these next few moments together, specifically our men, anybody can do this, to take that card, on the back side of that connect card, there's prayer request. And here's what I would love for us to do. I don't want to rebuke our men. I want to pray for our men. And so I want you to fill out that prayer request card and just write something. Like, hey, I'm coming in here broken as a husband, as a father in my job. I'm not sure how to do this thing. I'm not sure how to succeed in this thing, but I don't want to let go. That that could be the strongest thing you do on this Father's Day. 
is just to write a prayer request. And I want to pray for you this week. That if you'll drop those in the offering bucket, I'll pray for you this week. Pray for our men to not let go and to walk in these steps. Would you take a moment to do that? Uh, Even now as we pray, whatever it is, you could say, hey, my job. You don't have to give details. With my kids, I'm tempted to let go right now. But I don't want to do that. I want to take a step of faith and, and not let go, but I want to keep walking, even if it's with a limp. Just write something down. Let me pray for you this week, and then let's pray together right now. Just drop that in the offering. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, you as a father. I thank you for this moment where you allow us to meet with you as father. And God, I pray that you would, you would break us just like you broke Jacob, but you would also mold us and allow us to begin to see that if we'll not let go, if we'll keep walking, even if it's with a limp, there's a legacy in that, a legacy that points to you by your grace, for your glory. God, help us to be vulnerable enough and humble enough and broken enough to just say, will you pray for me? To write that on a card and drop it in the offering that we might have a church who prays for our men to step out in faith and to lead the way pointing to Jesus Christ. God, help us. I need your help. We need your help this morning. So we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.